Hey, it's Julie. And Pete. You're listening to Rush the Bus podcast. Or you're watching it. Could be on YouTube. On YouTube. Mm-hmm. But you could be listening on iTunes or SoundCloud, which is where you can find us. The only place you can find us. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. Yeah. Well, but you I can hope. also find us on Instagram at rush underscore the underscore bus. Yeah. So definitely hit us up on Instagram if you have any cool pictures, you know, stuff you do on the street, you know, nothing clinical. We ain't clinical people. I mean, you know, you can tell us about the cool clinical stuff you're doing, but we yeah. want to hear what you're doing in EMS, why you're doing it where you've worked and mm-hmm. how things are different. Yeah. So today we're going to talk to Kobe Pole. Yeah. Kobe is a really like, he's got a pretty awesome EMS story. He's worked in lots of places. Bunch of um, states out West. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doing like wilderness, um, search and rescue. It's good. It's a really great interview. Um, mm-hmm. Folks are going to really enjoy yeah. it. Yeah. He works in Reno. He says he's never run into Lieutenant Dangle. <laughs> I, I mean, don't, I, don't I don't feel that's possible, you know. Yeah. He says if they don't wear Daisy Dukes either, the cops. Yeah, that's that's but, probably not true. I'm sure he's mistaken. <laughs> I, I I think all cops should wear Daisy Dukes. <laughs> and white. <laughs> <laughs> Things would be a lot Could better. Imagine? Could you imagine if the yeah. cops were wearing Daisy Dukes? I mean, I'd be down for that, you know. <laughs> Would you be happy getting arrested then? <laughs> I would be happy. <laughs> really intrigued. So, <laughs> officer, is that your package or a forty cal? Oh my god! <laughs> well, I hope you are uh, are still listening despite still listening the after that creepy uh, <laughs> intro. But mm-hmm. I think you're gonna really like tonight's uh, interview. So, enjoy. Any views and opinions? are that of ours and our guests only and do not reflect any of our current current reform employers. Good morning. Good morning, Kobe. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. So thank you for coming on our podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. So all right. So you dear Kobe, you're on the, the left coast. Of the United States is probably quite warmer than it is over here right now. It is. So, um, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, so I guess I'll start off with the I'm I'm a twin. I'm a very fraternal twin. Um, okay. I don't even look related. Um, and I love to be outside. Um, I'm I'm a people person, which I think is one of the reasons I got into EMS. Is you know I like to talk to people and. Um, I also like those little puzzles. So I think that's also kind of part of it is, you know, a combo of talking to people and figuring out what's going on is one of the things that kind of intrigued me. Um, and I guess I started my EMS career in search and rescue in high school. Um, and we require our members to do a emergency medical responder, first responder class. That's like 60 hours. Um, and that was kind of my first glimpse into, you know, actual EMS um, yeah. and I guess to preface that I was always the kid who you know was dressing up as a paramedic for Halloween or a park ranger mm-hmm. or firefighter um, so I'd always been interested in that sort of stuff but I'd never actually done it until yeah. I got involved in search and rescue and your family you have nobody in on the on the job or whatever no um, I don't have anybody in healthcare or EMS or anything mm-hmm. like that so wow. it's definitely the the first to kind of trailblaze in that mm-hmm. regard 
That's and you found and you found somebody hiking right when you first started. I did, yeah. Um, I found. I did my research. I went and I, I did clearly. I I stalked. Um, okay. Missing in the woods. This lady was missing for nine days in the Sierras, um, and I ended up hearing her her whistle, um, oh and that's how we found her. And she had two broken legs, and we managed to sneak a helicopter in through the smoke because there was a big fire like right next door, and got oh her out. God. How did she end up lost? From how do you? I don't know. How do you how do you end up lost in the woods for nine days? Maybe she was climbing and fell, you know? Yeah. We're gonna ask him. He's supposed to tell us. <laughs> it kind of depends. Yeah, you know, some people fall and hurt themselves and can't move, and some people get super disoriented, and some people, you know, get sucked down. They think they know where they're going, and then they get mm -hmm. so far into it that they're like, Oh, this was definitely the wrong way. And by that point, you know, it's too late to turn around. So oh my gosh. just depends. Hmm. How do you know when it's too late to turn around? Well, is it like, you know, is there a gauge? You know, I don't know. I don't do the woods. Yeah, so. I, it's it's different for, interestingly enough, guys and girls. There's the, you know, the young 40-something phenomenon of like people from age, whatever it is, 13 to 40 or something like that are mm. much more likely statistically to get lost and hurt in the woods because they're not going to, they're not going to admit to themselves or their companions that they're actually lost until it's wow. too late. Hmm. Um, which is kind of an interesting. Huh. That is kind of scary. I mean, and I, I went hiking years ago with a, a roommate of mine up in the um, Appalachian trail and like, not, it was just like a day thing. Like she was doing the whole trail, you know, but um, she was practicing like every weekend she would go up there and do, you know, 10 miles or whatever. And like, admittedly, I had no idea. I was just like, okay. And if she had left me for dead, I would have been in the woods like that. Cause I had no idea where I was, like how to get back out. I was just like completely following her at, at a certain point, everything looked the same to me. You know, it was just like, I'm inside yeah. the forest, you know? I think people on the West coast in particular kind of take it for granted because getting access to the outdoors is super easy out here. You know, most times it's like a five, 10 minute drive or even up to two hour drive, but you know, you can get yourself out in the middle of nowhere pretty easily. Um, and there's not, you know, there's not somebody at the trailhead, like you can go, you can go. Nope. Not yeah. you. No. <laughs> and everybody's reliant on the cell phones nowadays. So yeah. that's also part of it is, you know, we get people who are like, well, my battery died and that's when it all went south. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so mm. I, I'm just curious, like you said, you started with search and rescue in high school. Like, what was that? That was like an elective class or how did that? No. So we, uh, Marin County search and rescue is one of the only teams in the U S um, that allows youth members to participate starting at, uh, 14, um, at the same level as adult members. So originally way back when in the seventies, we actually started out as a boy scout explorer post. Um, and it kind of grew from there and merged in with the sheriff's office to what we are today. Um, and so we probably have like, um, we have about a hundred members and I'd say like 60 adult members and 40 youth members. Um, and it's pretty spectacular because, you know, um, as a youth, other than driving a truck, you know, you have the same responsibilities and you get to do the same stuff, which that's is pretty cool. cool. That is that pretty is cool. awesome. That's like a great, I feel like that's like a great way to have like your own independence as a young person too. Like, yeah, you're given a lot of responsibility there, you know? Yeah, no, big time. Um, so He's that was trouble okay. too. Exactly. So, definitely keep chatting. The problem was I knew all the cops in our county, so I couldn't really get into any trouble. 
<laughs> but you can get out. You know, you got the PBA card early and everything. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I could do whatever I want. I know this guy. Yeah. How many? So how does they? I saw that they have like trucks and stuff like that from Marin County. So like, how were they? You know, like had yeah. So it, it kind of depends. We respond in Marin, and then the whole state of California has a pretty awesome mutual aid agreement with each other, and okay. that goes from anything from search and rescue to big wildfires. Um, so depending on where it is, if it's in county, most people will just drive there. And when I first joined, you know, I was waking my parents up at two in the morning, being like, "Mom, can you drive me thirty minutes in the pouring rain?" She'd be oh like, God. "No, go back to bed, <laughs> roll over." Um, so if it's in county, people will usually drive to the scene and a couple people okay. will go pick up trucks. But then if it's out of county, we'll all meet at our um, our rescue cache and then kind of okay. load up into trucks and caravan up from there. Wow. Hmm. And how long is like the average operation or whatever? How, how long do they call you guys out? Um, it depends. In county, it's pretty quick. You know, okay. the cops will search for like an hour or two and then be like, yeah, we're not getting anywhere. Out of county, you know, the, the county who's responsible for the incident usually searches for a day or two. And then if they uh -huh. can't find anything, they'll start to, you know, expand and go bigger and ask for help. Um, so it, it kind of depends. And it can be anywhere from, you know, a two, three hour thing because, you know, grandma with dementia wandered away from her home to we're out there for a week looking for somebody who's, you know, backpacking in the woods and is way out there. So just depends. How do you folks keep in touch with each other? Are you like paired up or? Yeah, so you're always, you know, we're never solo. You're always in a team. And then we've got radios and we've got sat phones and these little, the National Guard sometimes comes out and provides these little, um, they're called nanos. It's like, it's like a little, a little touchscreen phone almost that you can text huh. people with and they can track your location. Hmm, that's um, good. That's neat. And then were you, if you did find someone like you're capable of administering like first aid then? Yeah. And so that's where the emergency medical responder training comes in is, you know, um, you kind of take it for granted until you actually think about it. Then you're like, well, it could be just me for, you know, two hours or several days until they can actually get somebody in or get the person out. Um, and that's happened a couple of times when, you know, you find some guy who's all messed up in the woods and it's like two 14 year olds. <laughs> oh my God. Bandaging up his arms and stuff. So. Wow. Are they and nice? You know, are they like nice and like happy that, you know, that you found them and stuff? Yeah, most people are. Okay. They're not <laughs> like the entitled sure I would ones, be... you know, like the entitled intox. It's like, you got to be nice to me. Yeah. Like, no, but I guess if you're lost, you know, and like you see any sign. You're of just human, happy like... to see any human being at that point. <laughs> yeah. But that's pretty crazy. Like, so if you have to wait for like an extended period of time, like you guys set up like a camp type of deal or ha what happens with that? Yeah, it's all, um, and that's, it kind of gets into the, the whole wilderness first responder mindset, which we touch on in our um, first responder class. Um, but, you know, you start MacGyvering, like, you know, mm -hmm. we made a, for the lady I found, we made splints for her legs with her trekking poles and we cut up strips of her socks. Wow. Um, so you kind of have to, you have to get super creative and everybody pitches in. It's like, oh, I've got a jacket and I've got a roll of gauze. And it's like, all right, well, so-and-so over there has a camp stove so we can boil some water. And, oh my gosh. Um, you know, it's very, it's very different than working on the ambulance where it's like, hand me the four by fours. Yeah. Mm. Huh. Have you used anything? Like, have you used stuff that you've done in the wilderness in the street? Has anything Yeah, like I definitely over? carry over 
some of the I like that kind of MacGyvery stuff. Yeah. Um, and I've definitely found myself like, you know, cutting up strips of blankets or something like that to tie up something. And my partner's like, you know, we, we have this pre-made vacuum swamp right here. Like, <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, that. <laughs> but that's still better. Like, yo, you come you come into the hospital and you have a dazzling splint on, you know, and oh, everybody yeah. you, know, you tie it up in a little bow and all the nurses yeah. gather around, they're like, look mm-hmm. at that. Yep. So, or like, you know, like we'll, we'll be in the hospital and somebody will bring him like a trauma with like a really good splint job. And I'm like, that guy knows what he's doing. Yeah. And like, I, I love seeing like good splints. Yeah. I love, that's one of my favorite parts to teach of our first responder classes, the, the splinting and bandaging. Cause you know, yeah. obviously just throw them a bunch of stuff and um, mm-hmm. we actually do it with, you know, we give them like a, we have Sam splints and stuff and we give them some Sam splints and then we throw them cardboard and magazines and pillows and, you know, Hmm. Um, it starts to get ice axes and uh i've seen one made with a a rifle butt before and you know it's kind of fun to watch how people get super creative yeah yeah we don't have like uh i've seen sam splints and you know i've used them like at a couple places i've worked but i've never gotten fancy like i've seen some super cool fancy stuff that you can get really creative with those which is kind of neat sam splints are the ones that are like moldable right yeah. yeah, it's like the aluminum covered in foam and you can kind of bend it yes. and shape it okay. however you want. Huh. It's actually pretty nice. Yeah. And then how there. so you have then like if you're in the woods deep, like you have a helicopter kind of come and uh hopefully, yeah. It depends on the weather, but you know, fortunately we're blessed usually with nice weather here in California. So, yeah. you know, sometimes you gotta do it by hand, but most times you can get a helicopter in. And do is they there pick you I'm up being... and take you? Uh, usually they pick the person up and then we got to walk out. Oh, wow. Depends. Mm. (laughs) Do you folks have like any carrying devices when you're out there? Like if you have, yeah, we've got, we don't bring them out with us, but in all our trucks, we have, you know, the Stokes baskets and wheels. Um, and then we have a couple mega movers that we keep in different places that, you know, worst case, if you need to, you can carry those with you. Um, again, you get into the MacGyver of like, I've seen in textbooks, I've never actually done it myself, but they, it's like turning your backpack into a diaper and you cut two holes in the bottom and you stick their legs in it and you basically put the person in your backpack. And, oh you know, my God, there's like a baby sort of, carrier. Yeah, you <laughs> can make litters out of rope and sticks and, you know. Huh. That's pretty wild. And so do a lot of like adults who do the search and rescue, are they working as like I mean, like the older folks, because obviously if you start this when you're young, but like, are these people who go into like being park rangers or EMS or? There's a, there's a handful of, you know, we have a couple, we have some nurses, we have some paramedics, we have uh, like one or two rangers, we have some fire folks, but um, a lot of people just, you know, get into it because it sounds interesting and they like being outside, so. Um, there's definitely not surprisingly, I thought it was all going to be, you know, like, oh, I'm a paramedic, but in my time off, I want to do this, you know, but it's, it's, you know, people who are moms or bankers or, you know, work at the grocery store or whatever. So there's definitely a big array, which is kind of cool because you get to meet people from all walks of life. Yeah. That is cool. I definitely like that about volunteering and stuff. Yeah. Go ahead, Joel. I'm sorry. Uh, No, that's okay. I was going to say, so how many years you're still doing that now you're still yeah I'm still involved um so it's been six seven years now okay and then where did you go from there like so from there I had a uh I had a brief stint in college um and I 
kind of knew what I wanted to do in the end of it. I wanted to do, you know, something in the public safety world, but I don't know. I didn't, I didn't feel like going to my sociology class was, you know, <laughs> super intriguing and super helpful in that. So for better or for worse, I decided to take a semester off. Um, and I was, you know, I've always wanted to be a park ranger or something like that. So I thought, why don't I actually give it a shot? And I ended up emailing a, a bunch of different parks across the West coast. And eventually, uh, the chief of emergency services from the Grand Tetons emailed me back and was like, Hey, if you want to come out and be an intern or a volunteer, you know, we'd love to have you. Um, and so I just got my EMT and I went out to, you know, loaded all the stuff up in my car and drove out to Wyoming and worked there for four months in the winter. Huh. Where do you stay when you're, yeah. when you're there? Like, do they, um, they put me up in park housing. So I was technically an unpaid volunteer, but Okay. They paid for my housing and gave me a gas stipend, and then I got paid for every call I went on. Oh, that's um, nice. Hmm. Yeah. I'm sure that was pretty intense. I mean, it's the winter in Wyoming. Like, you know, what kind of stuff were you doing there? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I've endured winters here in California, but compared to Wyoming, I don't know if I'd even call them winters, you know. There was one morning <laughs> when I woke up to go on a call at like two in the morning and I looked at the thermometer in my car and it said negative 22 and I was like oh my god uh, <laughs> but so yeah it's pretty slow there in the winters just because that's right. not the peak visitation you know and a lot of the main roads in the park are completely covered by snow but I, I think that was better for me as a brand new basic because I got a lot of hands-on time with people and they could you know teach me how to be a good EMT and how to start a 12 lead and you know how yeah. to help set them up for an IV or set them up for a tube. And then um, because my supervisor was also, you know, involved in his normal job of law enforcement, um, I got, you know, I was kind of the sole person in charge of, you know, equipment and all that. So it was my job to inventory all the meds and, um, you know, restock the ambulances and see what was going to expire soon and then kind of ramp up for the busy summer season. Mm -hmm. um, and I also got to help and take part in the, they do like an EMS refresher a couple times a year, which is kind of neat. Mm -hmm. And so it's basically a two to three day refresher where a bunch of people come in and teach different courses. And that allows people to research without having to, you know, go out of their way to yeah. CE classes. How many people are there in the winter versus the summer? It's a skeleton crew. So the winter is just the full-time permanent employees. Um, okay. So you get, I don't know, probably like 15 to 20, yeah, more around 15 full-time rangers. Okay. And they're scattered throughout a couple districts in the park. And then in the okay. summer, they bring in a lot of seasonal paramedics, um, seasonal law enforcement rangers. And for the park service, all the law enforcement rangers at a minimum are EMTs. Okay. So it's definitely different than responding in a city environment because you show up and there's a cop on scene, but they, they know what's, you know, they have medical training, which is kind yeah. of, that took a while when I started working in urban EMS is I'd like, look at the cop expectantly and he'd be like, no, I don't know what's wrong, man. He's still calling <laughs> wow. And then, so during the summer, they have, I'm guessing, a, a larger staff. So like, yeah, so they ramp up for the summer because it's a lot busier. And so there's a, a handful of seasonal paramedics. So during the, the winter time, it's very, it's kind of, there isn't a fully staffed ambulance, you know, okay. um, and that's a good chunk of the park service. A lot of the bigger parks have their own ambulances, especially on okay. the West Coast when you're further from everything. Um, and in the winter times when it's not super busy, typically it falls on the law enforcement rangers who are, some of them are EMTs, some of them are uh, park medics. Okay. which is like a intermediate um, 
intermediate plus. So they can do, you know, a lot of stuff that intermediate or advanced EMT can, and then they can also usually do pain medications. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was created back way back in the seventies by the park service. And it's the park service is the only agency who uses it. I think. Yeah. Um, I was just going to ask you, so you guys run on like a different, so you're in Wyoming, but you, ha- you operate under somebody else's protocol. Yeah. Right? So Something there's like a that. national park service EMS protocols. And then some of the bigger parks have their own medical directors. Like in the Tetons, we were super fortunate to have, uh, two awesome medical directors, Will Pardon? Smith and AJ Wheeler. Yeah. Um, and they're also the medical directors for, you know, Jackson Hole Fire EMS, Teton County Search and Rescue, the ski patrol there, um, which was pretty neat because it's not, you know, there's not a lot of systems where you roll into the hospital and you get to chat with your medical director and they actually will come out and work on the ambulance or yeah. they'll be the ones who head off in the helicopter um, mm-hmm. for certain stuff. So that was kind of neat to have that sort yeah. of relationship with them. Mm-hmm. That is pretty nice. That is neat. I'm looking up, I didn't realize how big the Grand Teton Park is like 45 miles long and like 26 miles wide or something. It's like 310,000 acres. Yeah, it's a big, which all things considered, if you think about it compared to something like Yellowstone is is kind of small. Um, and fortunately the, you know, the the civilized areas or the areas with, you know, hotels and stuff like that are a little bit more compact they're not spread out yeah um but so that's kind of where the bulk of the ems stuff is and then occasionally you get you know something out in the woods where that falls into more of the search and rescue camp Hmm. um but it's interesting between the tetons and then the grand canyon where i worked next it was definitely um it mimics some of what you know you see in urban ems because people don't necessarily and same goes with the law enforcement side i found is people don't really leave their problems at home when they go on vacation you know you get the the old folks with their copd or chf who then are at altitude and suddenly start having problems and you know Mm. you get the same you know people bring their their booze and their drugs with them and all that so um you know you get a lot of more kind of like you know bear maulings are not uncommon there which what? everywhere else it's like what yeah uh, did you have a bear mauling ran, but no i didn't <sighs> i didn't have a bear mauling or like a, a bison goring but i think that's oh kind of like the of, you know wyoming oh. EMS right there wow yeah that yeah because like we ask people like if they work on like the shore like, have you ever had a shark attack and it's like yeah you know, it's like once in a while so even like people get eaten by dogs like bit by dogs yeah you know <laughs> i have never i I've been asking people lately. Nobody's had anybody like really bit by a dog, like chomped up. So. My child yesterday thought like, I don't know how we got in this conversation about bear maulings. I think I was telling him about a camping trip that I had. And then uh, he told me how he would like kill this bear. And I'm like, mm. I was like, the bear would just like slap <laughs> you and that'd be it, you know? Watch you aside. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I'm like, thankfully, if you, you know, we don't run into that here in New York City. <laughs> so, yeah. but, you know, camping upstate. Yes. Like. Yeah, I went, I went back to the Tetons for a PHDLS class the next year, and that was actually one of the scenarios was, you know, you have wow. a patient who's been attacked by a bear. That's pretty it's wild. Like, all right, cool, yeah, all right, we'll, we'll work this. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. I mean, it's, it's, you know, obviously it's a trauma that you're going to treat like a trauma, but, you know, you have, like, the potential. I mean, hopefully once the bear's done, like, they run off. I'm sure they don't want to hang around themselves, yeah. but... You know, it's uh, still, it's kind of scary. So how did you get to the Grand Canyon from Wyoming? 
Um, so I had a, they posted a seasonal job for a um, search and preventative search and rescue ranger position in the Grand Canyon while I was in Wyoming. Um, and I figured, you know, I, I was enjoying the Tetons and I would not have minded at all staying there for the summer, but I wanted to try something else out. And, um, you know, the Grand Canyon is also one of those big crown, crown jeweled parks and it's super busy because of the heat, and the desert and all that. So, um, and the EMS coordinator that, coordinator there is actually a former search and rescue member from Marin. Um, so that's kind of how I got that connection. So I was down there for the summer season, which was pretty exciting. Huh. What do you have to do to be a park ranger? Is there like um, a test? Not necessarily. It depends. There's, you know, there's a bunch of different divisions. There's like the interpretation division, which is the ones leading the nature hikes or doing the, you know, campfire stories and stuff. And then there's okay science and resource management who's doing all the you know like how many squirrels are there per square acre or whatever and then there's the um visitor and resource protection which is the law enforcement ems side of the house okay and do they have so an academy or you have to come in yeah so if you're going to be a law enforcement ranger you have to do the you know park service law enforcement academy um okay. but if you just want to do ems it's really just you know having your ems certs and then, you know, search and rescue experience or experience outside definitely helps, but. Um, hmm. That is cool. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I don't know, just like the wilderness. It's just weird. It's very, I, it's, I mean, it's there's some similarities. World. It's very different, yeah. um, you know, working in a big city. Yeah. That's cool. I don't, yeah. I feel like there's a lot. I mean, to me, there are much more, um, I don't know, like, you, you know, obviously you have like similar calls and I'm sure in Arizona in like, the heat of summer like you're doing lots of heat emergency type calls and all that but like just working in the terrain I feel like is such a difference you know because it's like you have to still kind of get to patients like that access is much different than if you're in like a yeah. city system, you know and it can change like that too you know where you know you're running a call in one of the hotels and then your next call it's like oh they're a quarter mile down the trail so you know your mindset has to change a little bit too yeah um, which is always kind of interesting. And to an extent, we kind of have that a little bit here in Reno um, because our response area is so big. Sometimes, you know, it'll be, you'll be the first people there with the fire department for somebody who's down a four wheel drive trail or, you know, up a mountain or something like that. Oh, so wow. it's, it's much less common, but it's still a possibility that, you know, you're throwing the jump bag on your back and going for a hike. Huh. That's pretty amazing. I mean, yeah. You know, it certainly keeps you in shape, or it should, I guess. <laughs> so how long have you been in Reno then? Um, I've been here in Reno since September, so not super long. Okay. And well, is it like... Was, wait, we're jumping ahead. We're jumping ahead. Yeah, we're, we're jumping. <laughs> yeah, we're jumping yeah, way sorry, ahead. Sorry, sorry. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's, we, we haven't gotten to the best place of Colorado yet, so... Yeah, so yeah. from the Grand Canyon... Um, I went back to Colorado for a bit and finished up. Wait, hold on. I have another question about the Grand Canyon. <laughs> All right. So you could pick people out who shouldn't be hiking, right? Because <laughs> mm -hmm. like we could pick hit, we could pick tourists out of like anywhere. You know, like yeah. you're walking in Bed Stuy, and you're like you're a tourist. You know, or like how do you put what what kind of things do you use to pick out tourists? Um. I mean, to an extent, everybody's a tourist, but you can pick out like, oh yeah, you don't know what you're doing, you know? Um, I kind of start from the, the shoes and work my way up and you can usually tell like whether or not they're wearing 
um, hiking boots or whether they're wearing flip-flops or, you know, loafers or something like that. And you're like, ooh, that's not going to end well. Um, and then from there, you know, the, the type of clothes that they're wearing and do they have a backpack or do they have a purse or, you know, are they wearing a hat? Do they have sunglasses? Um, and you kind of go from there. And it's, mm-hmm. that was kind of my job was to, to stare. So half of my job as a preventative search and rescue ranger was working on the ambulance. And then the other half was down trail trying to prevent these search and rescues yeah. from happening. So that was my job was to stereotype people and kind of be like, oh yeah, no, I need to talk to you and see how much water you have and where yeah. you're going. So could you tell them like, you can't go down this trail because it's, you're not prepared? I mean, not really. You can strongly advise. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, oh, here's my yeah, phone number. Really. Call me in a half hour. Yeah. <laughs> so. um, yeah. Well, that's half of it is there's also no cell service. So sometimes if they're really adamant, I'd hop on the radio and I'd talk to the ranger who was further down Canyon at one of the ranger stations and be like, hey, keep a lookout for this guy because, you know, he's going to end up on your doorstep. Oh, my gosh. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like if you know, you would think that like a person who's like somewhat unprepared, but like thinks they're going to take like a nice little walk. If, you know, if one of the employees says, Hey, like, um, I see your shoes are not really like great for this terrain. Like, you know, do you have other shoes you can change into, or, you know, do you have enough water with you or, Oh, I, you know, you don't have a hat. Like maybe you should think about, you know, putting one on the sun's really intense. Like you would think that, I mean, I feel like most rational people would be like, Oh, I do. You know, I have a hat in the car. Let me run back and grab it before I take on this huge endeavor. <laughs> but yeah, I suspect there's, it's not as rational as all of that. You know, yeah. Some people are pretty receptive, and then other people are kind of like, "Oh, I know what I'm doing." You know, but it's also very deceiving because instead of hiking up a mountain, you're going downhill. So the easy part comes first. Yeah, it's not until yeah. people turn around and realize that you know. And that was one of my favorite things to do. I'd be like, turn around, look uphill. And they're like, oh, yeah. Go back up that now, you know? Hmm. So how long would it take you to go from like the top of the Grand Canyon down to the water? Um, it depends on time of day, you know, fitness level experience, okay. all that. Um, in the summertime, the inner Canyon Rangers, who are the ones who are down in the ranger stations there, are they're leaving at like, you know, four or five in the morning and trying to get down there before the heat of the day. So somebody who knows what they're doing and is moving with a purpose could probably get down there in like two, three hours. Um, Wow, that's still like a very long Yeah, getting back up takes much longer though. Oh my gosh, I did not realize that. No, how did that, so they have to climb, like every time they come to work, they have to basically like, have take on this like massive hike like down and back yeah so the the inner canyon rangers are there for um like seven days at a time and then they have eight days off so okay uh, they're there for like a little over a week basically so you know they're not hiking up and down every single day (laughs) which would be kind of like a nightmare but um but that's a pretty long week you know like to be away from like your other life you know like up outside the canyon you know yeah Hmm. Hmm. what kind what kind of interesting calls did you get over there like um a lot of environmental stuff um hyponatremia is actually like a big thing there um which i had never really heard of until i started there we actually have those little istad devices um so we can draw blood and run like a sodium a potassium oh wow Um, and really the thing that we wanted to get was the sodium um Mm -hmm. but you know it would give you like five or six basic labs 
And then cool. um, we had a 3% saline that we would use to treat the hyponatremia. Um, and I had one where, you know, um, she had been hiking out with one of my coworkers who had been trying to feed her salty snacks because, you know, the, all the, the propaganda for safe hiking has kind of backfired and it's like drink lots of water. So people know to do that, but they don't actually yeah. replenish their salt. Yeah. Um, and between, you know, sweating and exercising, they lose all their salt. So that's how they get, you know, exercised induced hyponatremia. Yeah. Um, so what we would you say where... is like, like, what is one of the things that would key you in that they're having that issue? Um, without the, without like, you know, status. doing the whole blood thing altered mental I mean kind of like a history of you know they've been hiking all day and they've been drinking okay. a lot of water but it's like a weird kind of altered mental status where it's not like they can't tell you what city they're in but you talk to their hiking buddies and you're like are they acting right and they're like no they never swear but you know they're cursing like a sailor right now wow. you know it's like it's interesting like weird little you know changes in your personality and not necessarily like the straight you know like what city are we in I don't know yeah. um so that was kind of an interesting part of it too, is the way like, you know, you don't really think about how much the electrolytes impact your body and your brain, but it was kind yeah. of a neat way to see like, oh, wow, they really do. And here's how. And hmm. you do like a liter of this 3% or? How um, no, it was, oh gosh, it was like 250 mLs basically. And then you would take a second one um, and okay. see if their sodium increased. Wow. Um, so one of the worst ones I saw, we ended up driving them to the hospital. And so normally we rendezvoused with a local ambulance company from Flagstaff and they would take the patient. So that way the ambulance could go back in the park because it was like an, an hour and a half drive to Flagstaff, which was the closest hospital. Um, and so we, we met up with them and, this, you know, we had given 250 mLs of this 3% saline and she's still pretty altered. And we took a second ISTAT reading and it was still low. Her initial was like 122 or something like that. And I think the normal is, don't quote me, but I think it's 135 to 145 or something like that. Um, and so we were like, yeah, you guys need to keep this drip of 3% running. And they were like, well, we, you know, our medical director won't even allow us to monitor that. So we ended up taking her all the way into town and, you know, she was, she was fine. The most part, she was yeah. mentioning appropriately, but like some weird quirks. And then we get to the hospital and this is the first time I'd actually driven to that hospital. So it's, you know, 10 o'clock at night and it's dark out and I'm trying to drive around, find the ambulance entrance. So I parked <laughs> in front of the normal like ER visitors entrance to get yeah. out, ask, yeah. you know, the front desk and she starts seizing oh shit and so I run in and I like tell the nurse I'm like look we're bringing in a patient right now so you know a bunch of doctors and nurses and techs come out and yeah. you know, they're looking at us like what the hell is going on and we're in the back yeah. of the ambulance with this patient who's seizing and we push yeah. the brissette and then she rips her IV out right as we push the brissette um and so we're wheeling this lady who's now you know basically status epilepticus through the yeah. the visitor's waiting room <laughs> into the main er you can always tell those out-of-towners we do that stuff too like we'll end up like a strange hospital and like you pull up at the wrong entrance and you know everybody's looking at you like yo who are these two i know yeah. these two mopes they can't even find the entrance to the er yeah we're blocking like, I'm like not really handicapped here. spots yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm new but here was, was this patient like uh i mean was she an adult like was she older was she a young? normal adult you know, nothing like no crazy comorbidities that I can remember. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, you know, it, 
affects young people as much as it does old people. Um, so yeah. it's definitely an interesting, you know, very like niche thing that I'd never really heard about and yeah. doing a little bit of research, not a lot of other places experience it that much to that, you know, amount. That's interesting. Yeah. And what about like snakes? They have like those snakes and scorpions. I mean, they have scorpions. rattlesnakes and scorpions, but that's not super common. Um, they, they, they stay away from people. I don't do snakes or spiders or scorpions snakes. anyways. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. <laughs> Too bad. Call us back when the snake's gone. Yeah. Really? So, oh yeah. He's like so afraid of them I too. I mean, not that I want to like, you know, like find a snake, especially like a poisonous one on my mm -hmm. walk or something, but I don't know. I'm not as terrified, I guess. Like, would you tell me about, it? oh, Elwood's saying it. He had, there was somebody in Brooklyn who got bit by their like rattlesnake or something. And, and then they're like almost, they took him to the wrong hospital or this is like back in the day. Yeah. Well, we don't, Why there's don't only one hospital in New York snake? that has like, anti-venom nope. two really what is that hospital yeah because they have the zoo over there just found that out the and, other day and yes in the bronx like by the bronx zoo you know yeah. but um but even that i don't know that we have like everything there you know i don't know but i'd have to call for expert help on that one you shouldn't yeah, have so. poisonous snakes in an apartment is no, basically the moral of the story yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. poorly yeah. Yeah. yeah so where'd you go so you left the grand canyon and you so went I went to back school. to Colorado and I finished up my associate's degree and I worked as an ER tech at a small hospital up there for a little bit. Um, and then I was planning on going to paramedic school that June. So this was like early 2020 and then COVID hit. Um, right. So, you know, school shut down. So I went home back to California and then I was planning on leaving in a month for medic school. And then um, they were like, yep, we're going to go ahead with it. And then a couple of weeks later, they were like, on second thought, actually, we're going to postpone. Um, so I ended up getting a job in San Francisco um, as an EMT, um, which kind of ended up being a blessing in disguise because it was the first time I'd really worked in an urban area. And that was yeah. super helpful. Um, so I worked there for like seven, eight months. And then the next uh, January, I left for medic school. Okay. Hmm. Nice. And it, when you said San Francisco, you work for like that big company over there? No. So I worked for a small private company called okay. King American Ambulance, um, which inadvertently I had actually done my ride alongs with for my EMT class. Huh. Um, but so they're a small private company in San Francisco that's been there since before San Francisco fire, actually. And we have pictures on the walls of like, you know, the horse drawn ambulances. And yeah. Stuff. Wow. Um, and so they, so the city, the main 911 response is San Francisco fire. Right. Yeah. And then they also contract to the company I work for King American and then AMR puts up like two cars a day sort of thing. Okay. Um, so we really did 911 calls and then you do a couple private calls to nursing homes, but they were more like the nursing home didn't want to call 911 because they'd have to report it. So they'd call our number and could kind of shadily get away with it. Uh... Those patients, that never happens. Yeah, I, I always, I really enjoyed those calls because those patients were always like super sick and you're like, you should have called two days ago, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so that was great because I was really, you know, running calls in the system. It's not yeah. like, you know, all right, we're going to go run some transfers and then if they get super busy, you know, run a call. It was yeah. primarily like our main, you know, contract was to the city. So how was yeah. the city of San Francisco? Like, I've never been there, so... 
It's an interesting place. Um, I mean, it's got a lot of history. Um, and I really, I mean, I grew up across the bridge from it, but, um, I, you know, we'd go into the city once or twice a year to, you know, go to dinner, go ice skating or something like that. I never really spent a ton of time there growing up. Um, and so I, I really only know it from mostly an EMS perspective, which definitely gives me a jaded view. Um, but yeah. it's, it's a really cool old city. I mean, uh-huh. old on West coast standards, yeah. Yeah. East coast standards by any means. Um, but it's a very, it's a, it's a neat place. There's a ton of cultures there, which is really neat. Yeah. Um, and uh, you meet a lot of different people and, you know, um, working there, I've, I've never run more what we call translation calls, which would just get sent out as like, we don't actually know what's going on because they speak another language. And Ah. it was up to you to get there and be like, what language do you speak? And, you know, try to figure out how to translate that. Um, And then as it is kind of everywhere, but I think San Francisco to an extent is worse, you know, the homeless problem. And then um, the drug problems were pretty bad, but, you know, I I think that's everywhere at this point. So yeah, that was definitely, you know, I'd gone from running calls and, you know, the wilderness where people are dirty, but, you know, they have dirt on them. So they're all really clean overall to, you know, getting somebody covered in bed bugs and stuff like that was definitely a little bit of a, you know, culture shock. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, I don't know, like we've been watching, we have a friend who works over there too. And you're like, we'll send pictures, you know, back and forth, you know, like the neighborhood. And it's just like, I don't know west coast homeless people are like on another level compared to ours you know like we have a couple camps but it just looks like you guys have like tons of camps oh it's every san francisco is real bad it's like every street corner and so during the beginning of covid they actually started putting them up in hotels like a lot of the hotels were required to take you know a proportion so i ran calls in like not the actual Ritz, but the equivalent of the Ritz Carlton. And you're like, oh, cool. We're going to get a clean, normal yeah. person. And you get there and it's some guy who's, you know, like has mm-hmm. a room, but is still living in the closet or something weird like that, you know? <laughs> um, and there's a lot of, I think a lot of people move there um, because of the, um, the, the social services. You yeah. Know? Yep. Same thing it's with us. In, a lot if of you're people. elsewhere in the Bay area, it's, you know, why would I be homeless here when I can go be homeless in San Francisco and they'll, yeah. you know, help me more. Yeah. And then there's some people who just straight up, I don't know, talking to them. It's like, yeah, no, this is my lifestyle. And that's yeah. what I do. Hmm. There's one guy who had his, uh, he had his tent on one of those little, you know, the flatbed Home Depot carts that like you put a number on. <laughs> yeah. He had his tent on there and he'd like wheel it around the street and be like, all right, I'm going to go somewhere else today. You know, I am mobile home. You yeah. got to have it's a mobile house. So Genius. yeah, that's the same thing in New York city. Like every the hotels that you would never imagine are now like homeless shelters yeah, and stuff. And there's even some, it's like part homeless shelter and a hotel. And it's like, you know, it's. Yeah. Do you guys have the same? So in San Francisco, everybody had Narcan. They gave it out like candy, you know, yeah. the cops had it, the shelters had it, the, the bums had it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Narcan here. A lot of people do have it. Um, like obviously, you know, our firefighters have it, and I, I don't know if cops have it, but all like the homeless shelters have it. Um, and they, and they a lot of people, it. yeah, yeah the, and a lot and of it's people, four milligrams too. Yeah, yeah. So it's like I think the shooters. most I saw was four of those packages on the ground, or five. 
we, we rolled up to an overdose and this guy's on the ground and there's like 12 of his friends around him and we look and I start counting boxes and I look at my partner I'm like they just gave him five boxes and we kind of looked at each other and did the math and we were like 20 milligrams yeah that's how really much vomit bad. did he put out though he vomited it was kind of convenient because he jumped up all of a sudden and yeah. looked at us and then just took off down the block and so yeah. we were like okay bye sir you know and yeah. then of the big butcher knife fell out of his belt and we're like oh thank god yeah, yeah thank God. I don't want to deal with that. Yeah. We've had it where it was, you know, we've been seeing a little bit more overdoses than we have in the past. You know, it usually it's once in a while, but, you know, pretty much every shift we've had for the past two or three weeks, we've had an overdose and stuff. Yeah, so. we ran a lot of overdoses in San Francisco to the point where a lot of ambulances had a little box of Narcan with a, a needle and an atomizer taped to it on the visor. Um, yeah. was is like a common thing in san That's francisco crazy, bro yeah um so you know as a by the end of my time there as a basic my partner was like all right just just run this yeah my supervisor was like he goes i can't wait till you get your first overdose in medic school and everybody's gonna be like oh my god an overdose and you'll walk in and be like all right let's start yeah. bagging yeah yes i know that, thank you like <sighs> i i don't know every I don't know. Everybody thinks that Narcan is like this magical tool that you give it to them and then they wake up and then it's like, oh my God, they didn't wake up. So I have to give more. But, you know, then you, you know, then somebody else gets there and they keep giving more, keep giving more. And then you start, well, maybe we have to bag them now because we've already given them a pile of it. So now we have to bag them and then you start bagging them. Then, it, then they take that deep breath and now they start vomiting, you know, and nobody understands yeah. the joy we learned this from a guy in Florida. He's like, yo, bag them for a while. You know, if they're blue, bag them pink, then give the Narcan, you know. Yeah. Well, I think my, my FTO taught me here when I first started in Reno was um, he actually will throw the end title cannula on and bag them until their end title is normal and then mm -hmm. give them the Narcan if he needs to. Interesting. Yeah. Which was because I've always done it to like the pulse ox or, you know, yeah. bag them pink, yeah. like you said, but I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, mm -hmm. I feel like I haven't thought of that either. I usually just well, do we don't have, we're not, we don't. Yeah, we don't use the the nasal end title yet, mm -hmm. so it's coming in like a month. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty nice. Huh. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's we're very I, I slow to we... get new things. So yes, you know, it's such a large place. You know. Yeah, so. they're they're definitely that's the downside is they're super expensive compared to like a nasal cannula. But yeah, you know, I try to not use them on every single patient but it's especially for like you're like this looks a lot like sepsis and you know and you throw them on that or maybe this is dka or something like that before yeah. you take the sugar and you can throw them on the end title and be like oh that's the problem yeah, yeah. Among other things yeah but yeah, i don't know selfishly it tells you the respirations which i like that's cheating yeah so <laughs> cheating. 17 <laughs> boom done exactly yeah. you know so it's it's like the you know the where were we, Joe? We were at the hospital the other night with the blood pressure machine and stuff. And it's like, nobody takes old-fashioned blood pressures anymore, you know? And when you don't do it all the time and then you start doing it, you start second-guessing yourself, you know? Yeah. So, Did I hear that? You know, so. So that was, uh, Denver actually does not have automated blood pressure cuffs, which, hmm. um, so when I went there, I was like, you know, I, 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 like I took manual blood pressures in EMT school, but I've taken like one or two since. Yeah. And then I got to Denver and they were like, no, 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 use this. And I was like, but do you not have the auto cuff? They're like, no, of course not. <laughs> yeah. um, which at first was ironically enough, one of the more stressful things I was like sitting there panicking. I'm like, okay, did I actually hear that? Like what's uh -huh. my going to say? 
yeah. but in the long run it was super helpful because like i had a super sick gi bleed the other day and the monitor kept like throwing up the little question mark and i was like all right and i slapped a cuff on him and pumped it up yeah. and i'm like i can't hear anything and i know that you know because i've done it enough now that like if i can't yeah. hear anything i can't hear it yeah yeah yeah. Oh. I know. I feel like our manual cuffs are like, to me, that is one of the best tools. Um, Cause I think it, it gives you a lot of information. Like, you know, if you hear like a very strong pulse, like, and you start to realize like, okay, this is probably gonna be a higher blood pressure. And then you can hear if it's like irregular right away. Yeah, that was the weirdest, you know, like I'd felt AFib in a radial pulse, but hearing it was actually super wild. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think that like, you know, if you're using the the automated cuff, you know, you throw them on the automated cuff and the pulse ox, and then you're staring at the monitor and it, like the manual cuff forces you to look at your patient and feel their yeah. skin. Which yeah, that's, I was just going to say yeah. that, like, yo, you have to touch them. So you're doing like a couple assessment skills while you're taking their blood pressure yeah. Yeah. versus just sitting there chilling. And stuff. I was Maybe I was just gonna say I went to the doctor yesterday and it was like a pretty fancy kind of like new office like in a new office building and they used a manual cuff like on the wall with the stethoscope and I was like I was like impressed because I feel like every hospital you ever go into has like an automated cuff and to yeah, one of the little like stands. super yeah and I was like oh wow I'm like getting like realistically like triaged by someone who's listening to my blood pressure I thought it was pretty cool actually because I don't see that much anymore you know and I was yeah. in EMT class. They had the big blood pressure cuffs on the wheels with the mm -hmm. mercury in it. <laughs> and you had to pump it and watch the mercury. Mm -hmm. Wow. That was hard. That was hard yeah. to do the mercury one. Yeah. Oh, man. And that wasn't even that long ago either. Oh, gosh. <laughs> this goes back to my feeling old thing. Yeah. There you go. So, oh, my God. So oh. how long have you been in Colorado then? So I um, was in Colorado off and on for a couple months here and there. And then for medic school, I was there um, for seven, six, seven months, seven months. Um, so I went to, from, from San Francisco, I went back to Colorado for paramedic school and I went to Denver Health, okay. um, which is one of the, it's a accelerated program they have like a year long and then they have an accelerated so it's six months which was a lot but I don't know pros and cons to that I think it was nice because I was just eat, sleeping and breathing EMS yeah. Uh, yeah so you know I didn't have to like concentrate on anything else I could just throw myself headfirst into it but at the same time that's all you're doing so you know yeah. that but um it was a pretty awesome place to do it because it's a it's a great system it's super busy um they hold themselves in a high regard and like, you know, pride themselves and continuous learning and having a lot of knowledge. And then I think one of the coolest things was our relationship with the doctors there is unlike any other that I've ever seen where, you know, you would get a doctor for almost every room report, um, which, you know, coming from San Francisco, whereas like, if it was a super sick patient, there'd be a doctor in the room, but otherwise mm -hmm. you were talking to the ambulance triage nurse, you know? Um, yeah. but having that relationship of being able to talk with the doctor and say, Hey, I think it's this. And if you go, I think it's this, they will take that and run with it, you know? Hmm. Um, and then the opportunity to just like engage the doctors and ask them questions after your handoff is super cool. Like, Hey, yeah. what's your treatment plan? You know, yeah. and learning a little bit more of, from their experience, almost of they're like, well, I look at them and I see X and here's Y, you know? Yeah. And then the next time you see that patient, you're like, ah, I remember Dr. So-and-so told me, mm -hmm. you know? That's great. Yeah. yeah. 
That is super neat. So, and they're double medics, right, over there? Yeah, so it's it's also different. And San Francisco was, there was a handful of dual medic cars, but it was a lot of medic basic. And then the fire department was ALS. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas Denver was dual medic and then a BLS fire department, oh, um, wow. which kind of, you know, forces you, yes, you have that paramedic partner, but if they're sick, they're up front driving. So you have to be a little more self-sufficient in a way. Hmm. Um, could the fireman drive you if you had to? No, interestingly enough, even though it's like a public, you know, like county system, it's not yeah. like the fire department can't drive, which is, you know, strangely hmm. inconvenient. But yeah. so, what if you needed like another set of hands? Can you? Would they send another? You can, ambulance you can to take them as rider. You can take the fire department as riders. Is what you do. Okay, um, but your partner always has to drive yeah wow wow hmm. That's... Um, so the other interesting thing about being there is they did a lot of the research and wrote a lot of the stuff on trauma okay. um so they're a big very you know like they're very particular about how they run trauma and they're good at running trauma i would say so like scene time people would like brag about like oh yeah well i had a two minute scene time was like yeah. almost you know um to the point where like you know i'd be like all right so we're gonna do this and they're you know you get by the time you get the patient to the ambulance your partner's yeah. already driving pretty much I yeah. love it. um yeah. which was great so they would you know and I, I take this with me to this day you know you get out and you look at the patient you're like oh they're sick you turn around and say hey go set me up to your partner and they go back yeah. to the ambulance and they'd set up you know we actually had blood pumps um that you'd spike a bag on so hypothetically i don't think the hospital did it because their blood warmers went through something else Okay. But hypothetically, they could just spike a blood bag to your blood pump. Hmm. Um, so they, they had blood stuff. in the ambulance? No, not in the ambulance. Oh, okay. But they had the pump. So when you get to the hospital, all they had to oh, do. Okay. Um, oh. So they would set up for IVs or blood pumps or CPAP or whatever. And then by the time you get your patient with the help of the fire department back to the ambulance, you know, they're mm -hmm. on trauma. They're already driving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, That's a lost skill. You know what I mean? Like we don't see that where we are some of the older people do it like the crew will split you know so like it's like with us if it's a sick person like one of us will go check out and see what's going on and then the other person will go set up because like you know you got two emts doing their thing the firemen you know and everybody yeah. neglects to run back to the truck to set everything up and then you, know? you get there and it's like oh shit you know now you're fumbling around for the cpap and trying yeah. to mm -hmm. open the packaging and all that yeah mm -hmm. So that's yeah. definitely been one of the things that I've taken with me. Um, that manual blood pressures, I'd say, are the two big things. Mm -hmm. um, what about naked people? Do you guys strip your patients naked? That was a big Denver thing. Is you, you know, you'd hand your scissors to the firefighter and be like, "Get them naked." And I actually, yeah. in my internship, we had a shooting where we got called in before the fire department did. And we get there, and there's the, like the engine's still not there. And so I'm like, "Screw it!" And we took one of the cops with us, and I handed him my scissors. I'm like, "Hey, make him naked." He's like, "Okay," you know. Yeah, really knowing what yeah. he's doing, but yeah. Sorry. What about edibles? So I, Colorado's got legal marijuana. How's that? Um, <laughs> yeah, there. I definitely ran a, like a higher percentage of those calls than I did elsewhere. Um, mm -hmm. And it's more prevalent, but I think in a way, like a lot of people have kind of, you know, it's it's a thing now, so it's not abnormal. So I feel like people kind of have more experience with it, if that makes yeah. sense. So I, I ran more, but it wasn't like a crazy common, you know. Okay. Hmm. Um, interestingly enough. Yeah, we that get is, those. We get them yeah, now. That is a lot, you know, in my whole career of doing EMS, right, which is, I don't know, at this point, like 17, 18 years, I would say like the first 
13 of those, like, I don't think I ever took someone to the hospital for marijuana, you know? Yeah. And now it's like a pretty common thing where, you know, you have this like young, healthy person whose heart rate is like super high and they're like having a full on panic attack. And, and then I'm like trying to figure out what they did. Yeah, and you're and like flim flam. Comes out yeah, where they like ate edible. I'm like, oh, why did you say yeah. so? Yeah. You know, okay, yeah. like that's, that's great. Now we know, you know. Yeah, and that like knocks like half the the problem away. You know, it's like, yeah. yeah. Do you guys have the? I saw a couple of these in in Denver. The the spice, the synthetic cannabis out there. Oh my gosh, we a lot of it. Two here. Yeah, it's like K. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah, it's usually K two, but we get it like in the homeless shelters and stuff. Yes, you know. And you'll get different batches, you know, like some of them they'll have like the dope nod, then you'll have like the zombie vomiting one, and then you'll have vomiting the aggressive kind. So or seizures (laughs) and seizures, yeah. Yeah. So it it goes, it's weird. It's it it goes in like spurts of it, you know. Yeah. So I don't um, know what the appeal is, but I'm assuming like whatever like appealing thing is happening is we're not obviously getting called for because yeah. like whenever we're getting called for it, it's like so horrible that I'm like, why would you do this? Terrible. You know? Yeah. Like it seems awful, you know? Yeah. One of my favorite parts of uh, one of our, our street drug lectures is the, um, and that was one of the cool things about Denver health is they would bring in doctors to do a lot of the lectures. So you get like, you know, a pediatric specialist to come and do your peds lectures but yeah, anyways yeah. the guy who was doing our street drugs um put up a couple of the like the dea maps of how drugs are moved throughout the u.s and i never really yeah. thought of it in like the ems context but you know it really dictates like san francisco crack was the big thing versus denver meth was the big thing and i was like oh this makes so much more sense now yeah. you know <laughs> yeah that's yeah. interesting yeah it, it is weird because like when i worked in I worked in Eastern Pennsylvania and they locked up a bunch of the drug guys from Allentown and all the big drugs went to Allentown and then got split up. And then when they knocked those guys out, it wasn't getting stepped on. So we have like a ton of overdose, like really good. Yeah. You know, where it took a lot, but you can tell like certain areas because um, in New Jersey, I think it all comes into New Jersey and then it goes out from there. So mm. There's yeah. yeah, like the little the roadways and the maps and stuff. So you know, like we don't get meth over here either. Yeah, that's one like, of the things. Once we in a while get. we'll get meth, but it's you know it's always certain communities. It's the West Coast, really. Yeah, but yeah. I know I'm always surprised. If I'm like, you know, what what did they use? And it's like meth. I'm like, like yeah. what? Like where did they find this? Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's it was here a little bit in the '90s, but it was called Crystal at the time, you know. Or Crank. It was a biker drug. Remember Crank? Yeah. I said the biker. So, but that it. was it was like a rave drug here, like back in yeah. the day, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, now. Oh, what's the other one, Jewel? Woolies? You have Woolies? Woolies? What is that? I've heard of that what one. The co the crack or the the cocaine and the marijuana together. Oh, but that's like not a common. I mean, it's yeah. like that's you know people know what they're getting into with that <laughs> you yeah. know like well, yeah we have people they mix that and you know it's fun though i don't know i like I, this I stuff mean, you know and then it looks at you like you know it's crazy like you know when you know these drug names and stuff like that and you're talking to people they're like you're a raging drug addict no i talk to people yeah you know? right so i mean i was an experimental youth but <laughs> i don't know you know no. <laughs> But uh, so now, now where you're like in Reno now then, right? Or yeah, so from yeah. Uh, Denver, I came back towards California to be a little bit closer to home and family. Um, and I stumbled across uh, Reno 
And I had uh, one of my coworkers from the Grand Canyon actually went there um, and I was asking him about it. And the more I looked into it, it seemed like a really neat system and a cool opportunity and, you know, um, still be a little bit closer to home. So, and not under California protocols, which is always a bonus. Yeah. How long does it take you to get back home? Like from there, I mean, you drive? Uh, Yeah, I I took a little adventure. I went back up into the Tetons and worked there for a week um, and then came back. So it's like, the drive from here to there is, I think, 16 hours. Oh my gosh. Um, but I just break it up and it's not terrible. Yeah. That seems like a long way. <laughs> By but, yourself. You know. Oh my God. That's a long yeah. time. A lot of books on tape and podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> a mm. lot of caffeine. Mm. So Reno, so do you run into like, you know, Lieutenant Dango or anything like that? What are the cop <laughs> the cops don't wear? Short, short shorts. shorts. And they don't wear short shorts. In the outside. They don't wear, I was disappointed that white cowboy boots was not on our uniform. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a wasted opportunity right there. <laughs> Did you make Reno 911 jokes when you got there? Or oh yeah, my like- my buddy when I told him I was going to work there, he photoshopped my face onto the picture of the guy in the short shorts and the cowboy boots, yes. and he had me like, yes. holding like jump back. jumping up. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah, mm. that's very that's very fitting. Yes. but they do they like that because like i worked in staten island and i had like i walked in with like my collar up and everything and i was like hey yo and they didn't they didn't find it funny i thought I, we, we all find it amusing i think okay all right. some people get like mad you know when you want to stereotype them and stuff so yeah well you know the reason no, i mean like that short shorts thing is just funny it's not quite a stereotype yeah. i guess yeah, yeah. no mm-hmm. it's, it's we have tough. a friend we keep telling me he's from staten island and they get you know, not that there's anything wrong with Staten Island. There's nice people there, but if you're from like Brooklyn, Brooklyn. and you say, you're like, oh, you're from Staten Island. Like you, you don't want to associate yourself with that, with that borough. So yeah, it's kind of funny. <laughs> well, everybody has their own borough pride here in New York, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that's definitely very, it's, I mean, people, you know, they'll say like in San Francisco, like, you know, oh, I'm from whatever the mission or, you know, the Marina, yeah. but it's not the same, like badge of honor as it seems to be out there yeah it's it's from a bad neighborhood so what is what is reno like what kind of so it's definitely a mix it's washoe county so i work for remsa which is regional emergency medical services authority and remsa was born out of care flight which is the air ambulance service here um and so care flight was one of the the first two air ambulances at least on the west coast you had care flight in here in nevada and then you have flight for life in colorado and they were kind of the two first you know pioneers in that and then eventually they were like well you know reno was a very small town at first and they were like well we need to have ambulances here so they looked at care flight and care flight kind of made this sister organization which is now remsa um and so we have the contract, it's technically a private nonprofit company, um, but we have the contract for all of Washoe County, okay. which is massive. It stretches all the way from, you know, the Oregon-Idaho border um, south to here and kind of more central Nevada. Granted, a large chunk of it is, you know, BLM land and desert and there's nobody out there, okay. but um, it's definitely interesting because, you know, your response area goes from being an urban downtown five minutes from the hospital to, you know, you're 30 minutes to an hour from the hospital. Um, And so it's kind of, it's a mix, which I like of, you know, my experience in San Francisco and Denver, and then also plays into a lot of the stuff, you know, that I took with me from the park service of like, you know, all right, we need to call a helicopter for this, or how are we going to get this patient out of here? You know? Yeah. Um, 
so I really like that. Um, and I, I like the protocols. They're pretty, pretty expansive. And um, our medical director is awesome. And, you know, one of my favorite things is uh, they have a clinical committee. Um, so you can basically present and say, hey, I want to have this or I think we should change X. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you can actually work with the clinical committee and the medical director to rewrite stuff or change stuff. Um, That's so really like, nice. Right now I'm working on trying to get Draperidol out here um which at first I was like oh it's you know it's a great idea but it'll never happen and then somebody's mm. like no you should actually present that and I was like I can um mm. so I like that part of it too is you know there's there's a lot of a lot of options it seems which I think is kind of a necessity when you have you know those really long response times or time yeah. in the hospital what makes you like that drug? Hold on, let me. What makes you like that one? So I and where did you learn about this? Don't have experience with it. Like I've never given it myself, but I first okay. heard about it in paramedic school in Colorado, and it's okay. starting to make a comeback there. Um, so it was originally like it was the Zofran, and it so it's an antiemetic and a sedative, and it works really well for both. Mm. Um, Okay. And back in the day, it was, you know, like as popular as Zofran was for an anti-emetic and it was a well-known sedative. Um, and then in the early 2000s, there was some kind of sketchy stuff with the people who made Zofran published a study that was like, hey, Draperidol is going to, you know, prolong your QTC and send you into torsades. And so mm -hmm. the FDA put a black box warning on it and it was basically disappeared from hospitals and EMS overnight. Um, and then slowly but surely there's been more and more studies that have been done and they're like, actually that was kind of fishy and you know, the study wasn't great. And so it's coming back <laughs> into favor. Um, and well, I, I know everything heard, comes back. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I first noticed it and heard about it in Colorado and, um, especially in the last year, last couple months after the incident in Aurora, um, when the state, you know, everybody got up in arms about sedation, um, yeah. And one of my preceptors actually was kind of interesting to hear his perspective because he was involved as a like subject matter expert in a lot of okay. the legal stuff. Um, so the state at first was like, hey, you need to take accurate weights on every patient before you give them any medication. Stay here, sir. And that's was Stand like, here. whoa, that's impossible. And they were like, yeah. all right, fine, just sedatives. And we were still like, that's also impossible. Yeah. Um, so once ketamine got taken away, I think Draperidol, which was starting to come back, came back even more as another option. Okay. Um, and it's great for, um, it's a great anti-emetic and it's great for especially intoxicated patients, or I've heard, I don't know why, but combative head injury patients. Hmm. For intoxicated patients, it doesn't potentiate um, the alcohol in the same way Versed does. Yeah. So that's what's nice about that. Um, yeah. But it seems to me like it's another option to have in the toolbox instead of just yeah. like here for sedation. We have, we have Haldol, which I don't really think has a, a place in EMS just because it takes so long to, uh, to, for it to have an onset. And I think my favorite way I've heard Draperidol described is Haldol's sexier cousin. Um, <laughs> because it has so the it's same kind of like Benadryl, of like, so it's like yeah. a Benadryl kind of thing. It has the same time of onset as IV and IM pretty much, um, cool. and, you know, studies have been shown that it's pretty much similar to something like lorazepam for mm -hmm. a set. Hmm. Um, but it doesn't, but you don't stop breathing from it. Yeah. You don't have the, the respiratory, you know, impacts and all that, which is one yeah. of the big things. And some of the studies they've shown has a, for intoxicated patients, 
you know, their, their ER stay is much shorter because it doesn't yeah. potentiate the effects. And then you don't have to give as much of it as it seems you do with certain things like uh, lorazepam. Yeah. Um, so, and then the anti-emetic was the other thing. We, we have Zofran and we have uh, promethazine, um, which I've used a handful of times, but um, everything I've heard says that, you know, um, droperidol is a fantastic anti-emetic. So I figured it's, you know, it's got a bunch of different uses and it's yeah. another toolkit in the sedation toolbox, which especially in this current climate of, you know, people getting all freaked out when we sedate people, I think yeah. that's a beneficial. Yeah. They say, you, I'm just looking yeah, it up right now, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess it's actually considered also like an antipsychotic. Yeah, then, so it kind of replaces Haldol and then gives you other uses to it. Yeah, and it, it actually helps with pain and opiate tolerance. So someone who I guess is in pain, um, but maybe takes fentanyl or something at home, this might be useful. Yeah, I've heard anecdotally that for some stuff like pancreatitis, for whatever reason, it's super helpful with that. Or um, migraines, apparently, yeah. it works like a charm with. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it's not, they don't know a ton about, you know, it's exact actions and stuff because it's was used and then was, you know, it was why bother studying it for a while. Yeah. But mm -hmm. um, I think that especially with the current sedation climate around ketamine, I think that droperidol mm -hmm. is going to start making much more of a comeback. So, yeah. Cause like when I started, we didn't sedate people, you know, when, like when I was in EMT and we didn't sedate people, you know, we never called the medics for sedation, you know, and now everybody's, you know, call, call the medics for sedation, call the medics for sedation. And it was, I don't know if it was right or wrong, but it was just something that we never did back in the day. You know, it's like, we're going to pile on you. We're going to tie you up. And that's, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. I think, I don't know. I've definitely, especially in San Francisco, I worked with a lot of people who were just so tired of being yelled at by, you know, angry drunk people and bums that mm. like the, the bum would say something or the patient would say something like, you know, fuck you. And they'd be like, the said like, would already be drawn, you know? Um, but I think that people are almost, I think there's a time and a place for sedation. I think yeah. leaving somebody thrashing in restraints is not the greatest thing, but I also think that people are just too quick to, you know, be like, all right, we're going to put you to sleep now, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's not as, it's not a benign thing to do, you know? I, yeah. I don't, you know, it's not like just putting like an IV in. I, I don't, I don't know. So, I mean, there's so many different schools of thought. And like, we talk to a lot of people at work and people, um, and other places like, you know, do you yell at me? I'm not, I'm not dealing with this. You know, I don't want to yeah. get hurt. So I'm just going to, I'm going to dart you. I, I don't know if that's right or wrong, you know? So I don't. Yeah. It's definitely interesting. Yeah. Um, shit. What else? So how many, Oh, do oh, I, totally I was, my... <laughs> was just going to say, I'm sorry. Cause I was mm. like speaking and I'm like, wait, what's happening here? Um, so this is essentially something you personally can bring up like to a committee or to like the medical directors. And yeah. So you propose it to a committee, which is basically our QA, QI people. And then a couple people who are actively working in the field and then the medical director. And, you know, I basically made a little PowerPoint was like, this is Traperidol and here's the history and here's what it does. And then here's, you know, what I would like to use it for and why. So you can do that with, you know, basically anything like some of the other proposals were changing, um, you know, change anything from changing the style of tourniquets to I think we should, you know, rewrite this part of the whatever nausea vomiting protocol. 
Um, mm. It's kind of neat because you get a chance to actually have a voice in it as opposed to just being like, hey, maybe we should do this. And, you know, somebody higher up's like, sure, eventually, you know, one yeah. day. Are there a lot of people in your system? I like, I just wonder, I mean, it feels very like a one-on-one -on -one kind of thing. Like, you know, we have a lot of people who work in our system. So it would be in my mind, much harder to get like the ear of someone who could make this change, you know, but. Yeah, it's definitely, it's, I mean, it's a busy, big system, but compared to like San Francisco or Denver or New York, it's a much smaller, you know, system. Um, and then there's also a little bit of politics with it because we're the transporting ambulance service and technically the transporting medic has the final say, but the fire departments here are ALS. So there's definitely a little bit of politicking with that too, you know, um, Do they have an ambulance have to, too. Nah, no, they or one of them has two ambulances just because we've been so short staffed during COVID that, um, some of the really far outlying areas, we've actually contracted them basically um and it's a weird they even though they're a separate fire protection agency when they're using the ambulance they're working under us um okay. but anyways it's it's a smaller system so you can you know it's easier to reach people but you also have to take into effect it's not just like okay i want to just do this at remza you have to it's it's a county-wide thing eventually yeah. so you have to get the fire departments on board huh. okay hmm. that's pretty cool though so the firemen are medics. How does that work on like, you know, because I've never worked on in a system where the firemen are medics too. And like you get there and they're already doing like their paramedic thing. Yeah, it How kind does... of depends. Um, and it was the same way in San Francisco too, where you run with some engines and they're like really stoked about the medicine and they want to do yeah. cool PMS stuff. And then you run yeah. with others who are like, all right, you know, this is our you know, 16th run in the last 12 hours. So yeah. I just want to hand this patient off to you. So I think there's pros and cons to it. Um, I'm okay. still not entirely sure where I stand. Um, yeah. Cause now I've kind of been in both camps where Denver was BLS fire department and yeah, now in San Francisco is ALS. So I think in some regards, it's very helpful because just having yeah. another set of, you know, ears or eyes or somebody to bounce ideas off of is nice, but I've definitely run into occasions once or twice where it's like, you know, you start butting heads a little bit. So. Oh, like yeah. too many cooks in the kitchen kind of deal? Yeah. Hmm. Are they all medics or just, just this like one medic? No, they on the usually engine? have one medic on the engine. And sometimes okay. you run with a VLS or an ILS engine, but um, okay. typically they're ALS. I couldn't imagine where everybody's a paramedic on the job. <laughs> that would be crazy. Yeah, it's it's sometimes nice to be like, hey, I need you, you know, to start this IV or something. But at the same time, my, you know, we work um, a paramedic and an EMT or an advanced EMT more often. And the advanced okay. EMTs in Nevada can do IVs and IOs, okay. um, which is kind of, in my mind, most of the stuff that, you know, you want the extra help for. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, you know, there's, like I said, there's pros and cons. Um, sometimes our response times are super long. So we get there and they've already run a 12 lead and they've already started a line and they've given yeah. Zofran or they've oh, given fentanyl for the hip that's fracture, which that's yeah. when it's really nice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, pros and cons, but I think yeah. it's like with anything really, you know, yeah. that's, yeah, I don't know. I, mean, I guess I don't know that if I would wanna... be nice there because mm -hmm. here it wouldn't make much sense. Like, you know, it's usually we have CFRs who are, you know, first responders, and that's what the fire department is. And there are obviously some firefighters who were paramedics or EMTs, but, 
you know, by the time we get there, they're usually either ventilating a patient or giving oxygen. Maybe they gave Narcan, but like we're there two minutes behind them. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like we're taking an hour to get there sort of thing. Yeah. Um, like the longest it might take is if we're going across the borough and it's like, they've been there for 10 minutes, maybe. Yeah. Oh, we did 30 minutes the other night. That's true. Yeah. But that's like, that's rare. And that's because like, we're having like, you know, the COVID sort of thing like ramping yeah. up a little bit. So in New York City, you can drive four miles and it'll take you 45 minutes. <laughs> I know. Mm-hmm. It's really a lot of traffic. Yeah. yeah. So. so you could drive less than a mile. It's yeah, it's less than a mile from our station to like the far end is like Fulton Avenue. And at six o'clock in the afternoon, it could be like a 25 minute ride. <laughs> so and it might be 20 blocks. I think it's 20 blocks, something like that. Yeah. I know. it's you know versus you know you're you're on the highway for 30 minutes you know yeah you've done right. like a hundred and something miles and stuff yeah. so definitely so are you gonna you want to stay there like that's your intention to stay there for a while yeah i i still haven't really you know decided what what i want to do next um i think long term i'd love to go back to the park service again just because you know i like being outside and yeah. Um, I like that kind of unique challenge and aspect of it, but I definitely want to stay working in a busier urban area for a bit and kind of, you know, mm-hmm. get, get my feet under me a little bit more and get some more experience. Yeah. So we'll see. That's sense. cool though. I mean, yeah, man, don't get stuck. Don't get stuck. You're young, you know, don't. Yeah. I don't see him getting stuck. Though. I don't I see him like getting stuck either. You're going to end up like all been, over the place. You know, all over it. Yeah. And yeah. you've got like quite a, a good amount of experience doing like mm-hmm. all types of cool stuff. So, which in retrospect, I think was a really great thing. And is, you know, I, I like being able to pull from little tips and tricks that you learn from different places and different mm-hmm. experiences. Yep. Um, which is super neat. Yeah. That is cool. Like, I don't know, man. Like, I, you're pretty brave because you went from California to, you know, the park service to, to Colorado, like you, you knew nobody over there, you know, like that's super intimidating, you know, and then you come in and like, Oh, this kid from California and you're doing something completely different from however they did it. You know? Yeah. It's funny. Just the little like minute differences that you don't, you take for granted, you know, and then you're like for example we call it a gurney in california but in colorado they call it a pram which i'd never heard interesting we just heard that the other day and and we were like pram Pram. yeah they're like go get the pram i'm like the what wow that's so funny because like seriously the two of us were like is that a thing like yeah like a pram pram. (laughs) yeah Yeah, i don't know where that came from but yeah a pram or a cot yeah we call it a cot or a stretcher yeah, stretcher, the bed. <laughs> Sometimes yeah, get the bed. The litter. My favorite is I'll just do this to my partner. I'll turn around yeah. and do that. Yeah, which is kind of like a pram, I guess. Yeah, right? yeah. You know? like Kobe, you use way too much sign language. No, you have to though, because we do the same thing. And like, we'll get a patient. Well, we we got turned, so it's like we'll have like alpha. Alpha is mm-hmm. ambulate, or if we're gonna sit him in a chair, like oh, they're gonna be like a Bravo, and you know, a uh, Charlie is we're gonna carry him. So or we'll do this. Yeah, like, yeah. under the thing. Yeah, so, no, we yeah. definitely, I have a lot of little, like, yeah, we'll do that for a walk to. Mm-hmm. I'll do this yeah. for, like, can you do a 12 lead, you know? Oh, that's um, good, yeah. Mm. It's interesting, though, speaking of the chair, San Francisco had horrible, tiny little elevators and all these little dingy apartment buildings that were built in, like, the 1800s, so, mm-hmm. and everything's on a hill, so we used the stair chair there 
for everything, which I think is similar to what you guys do there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas going to Colorado or even Reno where everything's flat and people have these big, nice driveways, it's like, you can get the bed everywhere. And I'd be like, just grab the chair. And my preceptor would look at me and be like, are you kidding me? Like we can yeah. roll right up to their front door. I was yeah. like, oh, right. That's so, yeah. I know what a difference. It's, it's wild, you know? And then like, there was a, a girl, she's from, I think Frederick County. She showed us the thing where you take the power stretcher or any stretcher and like you load it on the porch, like it's in the back. So we get to have like the lifted porch. And yeah. You use it as like the back step of your ambulance and like load it in that way. I was like, why did I think of that? Yeah. Like, that is just... You know, so and San Francisco has those the cool flex chairs, so like the chair stretchers. I love those. Yeah, San Francisco Fire has those stretchers, which are we had the my company had the striker power cots, but the the mm. the Ferno ones that bend like mm-hmm. that. I was like, oh, those are so sweet because they fit. They are. Them. They do. They fit, yeah. I don't know why every. More, mm-hmm. You know, you get a patient who has abdominal pain or is vomiting or whatever and can't like lay down, and they're way more comfortable like that. Yeah. Mm. Yep. I miss those. I don't, I don't know. Everybody's so hype on the power, you know? So when I started in Denver, right as I was finishing my internship, they got the auto loaders and the power cots, but they Mm -hmm. had these old metal Ferno gurneys, you know, um, that were at first I was like, oh my God, that's so ancient. Why would you do that? (laughs) But the more I saw, I was like, they're way more maneuverable. They're lightweight. Mm -hmm. They can go over anything. You know, one person can grab the bed. Whereas with these power cots, they're so heavy and so top heavy. It's the thing that worries me is, you know, you get one wheel off the end of the gravel or something like that. And the whole thing's keeling over. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. We had, we had the INX for a while. We had the, the, I don't know. I love Ferno. I don't know what they did, bro. That, yeah, that thing had like way too many legs. It, yeah. it, and it, it, it did a lot like of cool things. From like Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, and also it was just, it was super cumbersome. Like if, yeah. you know, for any type of job, like a street job where it's like a shot, you know, Pete might run to the patient and I would just like grab the stretcher out real quick. But got to the point where we had to switch it where I would like run to the patient and he would get the stretcher because like otherwise I'd be like walking it side to side yeah. just like I'm gonna end up like hurting myself even worse because this 200 pound stretcher I'm trying to like like get it up the road you know and yeah. so it's just like really a pain you know and not quick but anyway do you guys steal Sorry, jobs from each other <laughs> do you guys like buff jobs um, and like steal each other's like you know shootings or stabbings not no if, if like a shooting or a stabbing goes out and this was the same way in San Francisco, like you'll hear eight people clear from the hospital at once. <laughs> yeah. Or like if your tracking's down, you'll come up on the radio and just remind dispatch of your location or something like that. Yeah. But I don't think people necessarily like blatantly steal it from people because it's kind of hard to do, especially because all the places I've worked, it's the dispatching is, you know, AVL. So they yeah. know exactly where you are. Um, but there's <laughs> definitely been times where it's like, you know, Oh, we're we're clear right now from the yeah. hospital. Yeah, here. if you need us, you know. Um. So yeah. Huh. I remember, when I was... You can see all the incidents pop up in the CAD as the okay. calls came out. So you'd see yeah. like a little a little pin dropped, and then it would say like pre alert, and you could start to read it. Um. And can so you see everybody's people... stuff. Could you see everybody's yeah. or? Oh, really? That's yeah, cool. you can like, pick and choose your calls. Oh, I'm gonna have this here in Reno. It's just you only see your call. You know. Yeah. yeah we have the same thing. But in Denver, it was like, oh, you know, they're dropping a call over here and over here, and this is what it's for. That is awesome. Yo. God. 
<laughs> you know, some people took advantage of, but I think overall, most people, you know, respected it. And I like the situational awareness of like, you know, if somebody suddenly starts fighting with somebody, you know exactly yeah. where they are and what they're yeah. doing. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. so. we have that, we're like on the split of like two different radio frequencies. So if, if you're like a unit from the central part and you're operating in our area, you're on your channel. And if you get your ass kicked and we can't hear you, yeah. you know, unless somebody's monitoring that channel. So, you know, being able to see where everybody is, that, that'd be super cool. So we have yeah, to call our boss. Was... I'm like, yo, what's that job? That sounds yeah. pretty good. Yeah. yeah. The supervisor trucks have, have that enabled on the CAD here where they can see all the, all the incidents and same with, we have these little uh, Ford Explorers that get used as like little QRV cars and Okay. I always like doing that because I can just peruse and be like, huh, what's so-and-so doing? Yeah. Huh. That is yeah. cool. Yeah. Because yeah. our, our supervisor, he can look up like the CAD notes and stuff from every job. We can just, what they call like an ETR. So if you hear yeah, somebody gets something kind where of they cool, are. we can see where you are. And then from that, it gives you a police atom. So mm -hmm. you can kind of figure out where they are and in relation to where you are. And you're like, I can definitely beat them there. So. <laughs> You know, I put you with some like the police channel, you know. Yeah, we don't have access to the police channel here in Denver. Interestingly enough, like the paramedics there are closer to the cops than they are the fire oh, department. Yeah. So one one of the medics would be on the, the ambulance channel and the other one would actually be on the police department district channel. And that way, you know, if somebody starts beating your ass, you can get on the police yeah. radio and be like, here's where I'm at and get an instant yeah. response. Yeah or you hear them tone out something like a shooting or something like that. It'll usually come out there sooner than it will, you know. Yeah, us too. Yeah, yep. Hmm. We have Citizen. Do you have Citizen, the Citizen app over there? San Francisco does, um, yeah. which was always interesting because you'd like try to, after you went on a call, you'd be like scrolling through yeah. it. And you're like, we yeah, like, <laughs> Look, there's me. Yep. Yeah, right? they get some good video, bro. They get some good video. Yeah, so. it's impressive. Yeah. That is cool. Man. Hmm. I mean, thank you for chatting with us. I, Thanks I'm for like, coming on. I feel like for like, yeah, you know, a career that has been, I mean, not short, but like just a couple of years, you've like packed you've a been ton all of over the place. I'm like, I want to hear what happens in the next five years. You know, like, I'm very curious. Like, yeah, well, thanks for having me. I, it's again, like I said, I love hearing about all the different ways that people do things and you guys, you know, really present that. So that's kind of, we're neat. trying. So, <laughs> you know. So it's, yeah. it's tough. It's, you know, and that's the thing, like you said, you know, you came from here and then you learned the stuff in Denver and the stuff in the park service and the stuff, you know, you think everybody else knows. Yeah. You, you really know? take it for granted. And you're like, oh, but, yeah. yeah. So, you know, like, and I'll, I'll give like the scoop stretcher, like before I worked in New York city, I once in a while use a scoop stretcher. Now all we use is a scoop stretcher. It's the same before I went to Denver. I was like a scoop stretcher. I've seen that in school, but like, yeah. Yeah. So, well, like I'm down here, we don't, yeah. yeah. Like when I was upstate, I remember they like had the Reeves and I was like, mm. what's this, you know? And then I was like, oh, this is cool. And we, no one has it down here. Like that's not a thing down in the city, but upstate, it made more sense, you know? So I don't know, cool little, little quirks. Yeah. So I, I'm interested to see where you're going to go next. Yeah. So. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you, and Thanks, um, of course, to chat. So yeah, yeah. it was Great lovely to talk with you guys. Yeah. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your day, Kobe, and thanks for being Thanks. on Rush the yeah. Bus, and uh, yeah. and hopefully everyone. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah. yeah we'll enjoys your story as much as we did. So. Yeah.
Hold on, we uh, we stop this. Thing. Behind the 44 Gates Avenue, I have 750 Gates Avenue.